So this is from 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 5. We actually missed a little bit between our kids' talk reading and now. The little bit we missed is the end of chapter 4, where what happens is a beaten-up and you know, guy with torn clothes from the army flees the defeat that Israel suffered, where the Ark of the Covenant was captured, returns back to, into Israel's territory and announces the defeat. And poor priest Eli... He's sitting on his chair, he's old, he's blind, he's heavy. He hears the news. And when he finds out the Ark of the God, the Ark of the Lord has been captured, he falls off his chair and dies, just like um, the, God said would happen uh, through 1 Samuel's prophecy in chapter 2. Um, also, interestingly, Eli's daughter-in-law, who's about to give birth, hears this news. She doesn't make it through the labor, but before she dies... Uh, she says, the glory of the Lord has departed Israel. In fact, she names her son to mean something like the glory has gone. So interesting little end of chapter 4. What's going on uh, with Israel and the presence and the glory of the Lord at this point? Let's pick up in chapter 5. Um, you can follow on the screen or in your Bibles. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early in the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon, dusted him off, and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of, God, of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of, the, of is, the God of Israel? And they answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. It afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, Have they brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people? So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and they said, Send the Ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was heavy very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. When the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called together the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. And they answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel... Do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, 
What guilt offering should we send to him? And they replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country, and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaohs did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have been calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them onto the cart and penned up the calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua, Joshua at Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chests containing the gold objects and they placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offering and made sacrifice to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines Philistines, saw all this and they returned that same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors that the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Eshkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua at Beth Shemesh. But... God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt on them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of kiriath Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kirath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliza, his son, to guard the Ark of the Lord. The Ark remained at Kirath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Thanks, guys, for reading. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. My name is Carlos. Great to have you here with us today. Um, I wonder, uh, as this passage was read to us before, if uh, the movie Indiana Jones uh, sprang to your mind, uh, A Lost Ark, 
action and adventure. Um, I went to see, when I was about eight years old, the blockbuster movie at the time. I think it was called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, I've got to say, I was traumatized by that movie as an eight-year-old. Uh, seeing seeing uh, someone age in the blink of an eye was uh, terrifying for me. And ever since, I've never really been a fan of the Indiana Jones franchise. But it seems to me, as I've been reading through 1 Samuel, that this story is essentially an Indiana Jones type of story. It contains staggering violence, grotesque sickness, fallen idols and golden treasure and tribute. And I realise this is a bit of a stretch, but kind of like the ancient equivalent of a runaway train. It's just that it's cows leading a cart home on its own. It's a fascinating story. I've read it a number of times over the past month or so. And the more I read it, the more fascinated I become by it. And that's why this morning I've wanted to just slow down with you and read chapters 4, 5 and 6 in the first bit of chapter 7. It is a long story, but I hope you agree it's worth taking the time to read this story. Because the arc narratives, they are full of adventure, aren't they? But apart from being just entertaining stories, they lift the veil, so to speak, and they give us an insight into the power and the holiness and the steadfast nature of our God. By the end of these three chapters, we've seen God win a military campaign without an army, We've seen him strike down probably thousands without a sword and we've seen him topple a foreign god. And then we see him making his own way home back into the land all on his own with no army. His power and his glory and his might just shine through in this passage. It's glory and it's might and it's power that no one is immune to, not even the Israelites, who at the end of the reading gaze upon the ark and die. And the question I think we need to ask ourselves, having read this great story of adventure, is the question that is asked by the text itself right at the end. There in chapter 7, verse 20, this is the question that's asked. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord the holy God. See, having seen the almighty power of God, granted it's presented in these chapters, isn't it, with a bit of comedy, but having seen the might of God, having seen God win battles without an army, the question we've got to ask is, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, the holy God? I think that's the big question that should shape how we read these passages. Today, I just want us to see three things, really, from these long passages. They're listed there in your leaflets. If you've got them, you might like to follow along. I want us to see the first thing that came out of chapter 4, that God is not a very good, good luck charm. God is not a very good, good luck charm. Secondly, I want us to see that our God is not helpless or powerless or weak or defeated. And thirdly, I want to see that our God is a holy holy, holy God. I'm going to start just by working through with you this idea that God is not a very good, good luck charm. He's not a good luck charm that will help us fighting our battles. And we see that really clearly, I think, in chapter 4. 
As you're turning to chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, I just want you to think back about your sporting life. Did you ever have any good luck charms that you brought with you onto the sporting field? Perhaps it was a pair of undies that you wore when you won a grand final once that have made their return to every game since. Perhaps it's wearing odd socks that does it for you. I've seen it reported a number of times that the world-famous basketball player Michael Jordan began his basketball career playing for the University of North Carolina. Apparently, he went on to wear his North Carolina basketball shorts under his Chicago Bulls shorts for every single game he played, thinking that they brought him good luck. The Israelites are looking for a good luck charm because they've had a tough time in their military campaign. In chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, we read that the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines and about 4,000 of them were killed. And so the elders of Israel hatch a plan. They say this in verse 3 of chapter 4, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. And so the ark is brought to battle. And and did you notice who's accompanying the ark? We saw it in the kids' talk. It's our scoundrels from last week. Hopney and Phineas are there with the ark. I just want to pause for a moment in the story and just help you to think through what's just happened. What is the ark? Well, the ark is described described in a number of different places in the Bible, perhaps Most succinctly, the ark is described in Hebrews chapter 9. We read this, and I'm just going to read from Hebrews chapter 9 for you. It says, behind the second curtain, and the writer to the Hebrews here is describing the temple. The temple hasn't been built in 1 Samuel. But behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. The ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. In Exodus, we read uh, that God tells Moses that he will meet him above the cover between the two cherubim. So the ark, it, it never really just contained God. God could never be confined to a box. But it did represent a concentration or a dwelling place for him in the time of Israel. And as we think about the ark, it's worth remembering that it had been to battle with the Israelites before. It was marched around Jericho seven times to make the walls fall down. It went before the people as they crossed over the river Jordan into the promised land. The priests held the ark in the middle of the Jordan River and the water stopped so they could walk through as on dry ground. And so in many ways as we read this story, we have to remember that the Israelites had some experience of taking the ark into battle with them. They knew of its power. And yet here in 1 Samuel, the circumstances are very different. There is no directive from God telling them to bring the ark with them into battle. This is the people's idea. Their thinking, of course, is something like this. If we bring the ark into battle, surely God will act. Surely God will protect us. 
if not for our sake, then for his own sake. Essentially, they're saying to God, let's see you get some skin in the game. Let's obligate God to act to achieve our own purposes. The campaign fails pretty miserably, doesn't it? We read in verse 10, So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, died. See, God's not a very good, good luck charm, is he? And here's the problem. Israel was just trying to manipulate God. And God's not to be used as a good luck charm. He's not to be obligated or tricked into action. In fact, this was the way that the pagans of the time, the other religions in the Canaanite area, that's how they behaved. They often provided their gods with food offerings on the basis that it would obligate their gods to act. So if they wanted rain for their crops, they would offer food to their God. And in feeding that God, they thought then that their gods would provide rain. Bit of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But the God of Israel does not need our offerings. He might like them, but he doesn't need them. And so he can't be manipulated or obligated to act. I think the observations of the commentator Dale Davis are really great here. He says this, Yahweh will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. And Yahweh will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. I wonder today that in our world today, perhaps this is less of a problem than it was in Samuel's day. Today I think so much of our world and so much of our society are kind of completely blind to the supernatural components of the world, so they give God no extra thought, let alone try and trick or obligate God into action. But perhaps in the church we need to be really careful of this. Davis again says something really helpful here. He says, whenever the church stops confessing thou art worthy and begins chanting thou art useful, well, then you know that the ark has been captured again. It's an astute observation, isn't it? Worth, I think, us considering for a moment today, do we praise God for who he is or simply for what he's done for us? You know, in some ways, of course, this is a balanced thing. It is, I think, right to thank God for his work in the world and in our lives. But is that why we praise him? He's worthy of our praise on his own because he is God. I want to move on to the the second idea. After the capture of the ark, one of the questions that must have been asked in the battle of the gods between the Philistine God and the God Yahweh, is the Philistine God Dagon more powerful than Yahweh? Is that why the battle ended the way it did? And chapter 5 of 1 Samuel, I think, answers this question not only definitively, but it does it with a great deal of humour. I think we're supposed to find this a funny passage. At the start of chapter 5, we learn that the captured ark is brought to Ashdod. It's probably the premier city of the Philistines. And the ark is placed before their god, Dagon. It's an ominous picture, isn't it? Israel's god, 
placed in subjugation to the Philistine god Dagon. The idea we're supposed to see here is a victorious god standing over a defeated god. And yet what happens in the passage? Well, overnight, Dagon falls on his face before the ark. Or put another way, the supposedly victorious god bows down low to the true god. So the Philistines then go and pick Dagon back up. And I think it's supposed to be really funny at this point. You just imagine the scene of the men running around, heaving and straining to lift their god back onto his perch. And yet it's futile. The next morning, Dagon is again prostrate before Israel's God. This time his head is broken off. His hands are broken off. A God that never really could speak or act. Now symbolically can't speak and symbolically can't act. And we see here the first of the great problems that the ark brings into the Philistine land their God has been destroyed. And the second problem is that the Lord's hand was heavy on the Philistines and so they were afflicted with tumours. Those of you with your Bibles open might like to look down at the footnotes in verses 6 and 9. I think, again, this is supposed to be funny as we read this. There's even more colour and description given here. Rats invaded the land, the land is defeated and the tumours are listed as being in the groin area. This is a hideous illness. The Lord's hand was heavy. He struck their God, he struck their land with rats, and now he strikes the people with tumours. But there's kind of a question that's being asked in the background here, a question of really has this happened because of God? There seems to be some doubt about the cause of what's behind all this destruction. And so the Philistines moved the ark of God from Ashod to Gath and from Gath to Ekron, And in each place, the tumours and the rats follow the ark. And by the time the ark gets to Ekron, the people have kind of wisened up to what's going on here. They don't want it coming into their town. And that's why they say in verse 11, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. And the message is pretty clear at this point, isn't it? God is not a good luck charm that can be wheeled out and used, not because he lacks power, No, he's in control. He just doesn't need us. We need him. He's not a helpless God. No, he is a God who is fully in control. But he's not obligated to us. By the time we get to chapter 6, the Philistines are now making plans to return the ark at one level, this must have been pretty difficult for them to do. The ark was, in a sense, the trophy, the prize in their defeat of the Israelites. And yet the stakes are high for them, aren't they? Their God has been defeated, destroyed. The land is overrun by rats, and they themselves are dead or they're dying because of these tumours. So the Philistines call together their priests, and they hatch a plan to return the ark. Firstly, they make guilt offerings. Five golden tumours and five golden rats. tells us that the five relates to the number of the Philistine rulings and the guilt offerings are intended to give glory to God. The second part of their plan is like a test. Did you see that? There must have still been some doubt in the Philistine priest's mind. Was all this trouble that's happening in their land, was it just coincidence or chance? 
Or was it really the Israelite God doing this? So to remove all doubt, the Philistines come up with this plan where they get a cart and they hitch it to two cows, cows that have never been used to pull a cart before, and they take away the, car- they take away the calves from these cows and they pen them up somewhere else. They place the ark and the tumours and the rats on the cart and they set the cows loose. And the thinking, thinking behind this is that if Israel's God really is behind all this, then the cows will take the ark home. And I want you just to imagine the scene for a moment. The cows' calves are penned off somewhere in the distance. And every animal and motherly instinct in those cows is to return to their calves. And these cows, they've never pulled a cart before. They don't know how to do that. You think in their confusion, one cow would go one way, another another. And then finally, these are cows. Cows don't walk with a purpose down a road, do they? You probably heard the saying, like Brown's cows. These cows are most likely, I think, to see a bit of tasty grass on the side of the road and go and eat that, and then they eventually find themselves just stuck in the middle of a paddock somewhere. But look what happens in verse 12 of chapter 6. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. And the rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. See, there is absolutely no doubt about what is happening here. God is bringing the ark home. While Israel was defeated by the Philistines and it looked like Israel's God had been defeated, here we see Israel's God doing everything on his own, returning from battle. And not only returning from battle, but coming back from battle with gold tribute in the back of the cart. The message is pretty clear, isn't it? God does not need us to achieve his ends. He's capable of doing it on his own. Some of the people of Beth Shemesh, they see the ark coming back and they begin to rejoice, the ark is back. They sacrifice the cows, they chop up the cart to provide the wood for that. But in verse 19, we see a warning. Let me read that warning to you. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death, because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. There's a bit of confusion or debate about how this verse should be translated. It's a very difficult verse to translate, as I understand. Dale Davis has two options that he thinks are good ones for us. The first is that the 70 who were struck down weren't actually looking into the ark or peering inside it, but rather they're looking on with indifference, with no celebration. He says the return of the ark doesn't move them. They're just apathetic as they look on. As Davis puts it, thinking through the mind of God, surely the fact that God doesn't matter to us is not a matter that matters to him. But it must do because he sees 70 of them die. Or perhaps what actually happened here is that the men treated the ark in a way that they shouldn't have, without the due respect and awe that the ark deserved. Whatever the case really as to how we translate this verse, the point is... That being an Israelite on its own doesn't protect you from the power of God. And so the people 
respond with that question that I think is a question that guides our whole reading of this passage. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? The Philistines couldn't. Some of the Israelites couldn't either. Today I think we're probably inclined to forget the holiness of our God. We're perhaps more inclined to see God as a mate in the sky, more so than as the creator of the universe. But here's the thing, isn't it? God is powerful beyond our expectations. He is the creator of the universe. And we need to be careful not to think about him or gaze on him with indifference. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? I wonder how you'd answer that question. Because the answer is that those who can stand in the presence of the Lord are only those who do so through the work of Jesus. See, unlike those who gazed on the ark at Beth Shemesh, we have been invited into the very presence of God through the work of Jesus. It's not that God has become less holy today. No, he's the same God. It's not because we are less sinful than the Israelites or the Philistines. No, we have been invited into the very presence of God because of the work of Jesus. I want to show you this from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews has a a lot to say about the ark. I've already told you a little bit about it from chapter 9. Hebrews has a lot to say about the ark, a lot to say about the tabernacle and the way in which God might be approached. It's clear in Hebrews that looking on God is a high-stakes thing. But it's equally clear in the book of Hebrews that the death and resurrection of Jesus was a monumental event an event that means that our sins and lawless acts are remembered no more. So come with me, please, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10 on page 1872. You'll see there that verse I just quoted from, verse 17 at the top of of the page there on page 1872. Because our sins and lawless acts are remembered no more because of the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews is able to say... What follows in verse 19? Let me read this to you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our Heart sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The question from 1 Samuel is who can stand in the presence of a holy God? And here we see that we can. We're being encouraged by the writer of the Hebrews to draw near to God, to come into his presence. And again, that's not because we're better than the Philistines. Or the Hebrews. It's not because being in a church plant makes you more worthy. It's not because we're part of Adelaide's oldest church that we can do that. We can only do it because in Jesus and through his death and resurrection, our hearts have been sprinkled clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. That's a great thing because our God is a holy, holy, holy God He is a powerful God. 
a God who acts. He's a God who we ought to praise rather than use. We've seen today a fabulous story. I'd love you to go back and read the story again this week. We've seen the fun and the humour and the surprise in this story. But as you go back and reread, I want you to notice, and I think appropriately tremble at the power and the holiness of Israel's God, our God. Marvel at the way in which his plans come to fruition despite the way that people act. And as you see the holiness of God and his power at work in the book of 1 Samuel, I think we should also rejoice that in Jesus we are able to draw near to this same God with great confidence. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this story in 1 Samuel that we can read, a story that is as fun and as exciting as a blockbuster movie. Father, we thank you that this story reminds us of your holiness as a God. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, for what he has achieved and for what that means for us, that because of him we can stand in your presence. And we give you great thanks for that today. Amen. I've got a couple of questions this morning. Uh, the first question is um, asked essentially, like tumours literally, how do they know? Uh, good question. I, I don't know how they knew what was going on. I take it though from my reading that they're not talking about kind of tumours that you wouldn't know about just from looking at somebody, but that these are lumps or bumps on their body. Uh, one of the commentators that I read in the week was kind of reflecting on how some of this stuff looks very much like the bubonic plague, like rats, big lumps kind of thing in the groin area, that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't know, I reckon that they would have been fairly obvious what they were looking at. And so um, the tumours seem to have some sort of form that also could be replicated with the gold offering that they made. So I'm thinking that it was lumps and bumps on people's bodies that were causing the problems. Uh, I don't think we know much more than that, uh, unfortunately. Uh, the second question kind of asks, um, uh, let me just bring it up. Um, how do we balance treating God as a worthy God rather than a useful God while still asking him for our requests? I think that's a really great question to ask. A number of uh, ways in which I think I could answer that. I think firstly our priority should be in just recognising God for who he is. That our God is a powerful God, an awesome God and a worthy God, worthy of our praise regardless of what happens in our life. He is worthy of our praise because he is God. But our God out of love for us has asked us to roll our concerns onto him, to pray and ask him for things. We see this in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught. He says, uh, Jesus prays that God's name would be hallowed, that he would be lifted up. But Jesus also encourages his followers to pray for their daily needs. And I think there is a balance there, but there's also a priority. We need to recognize God as a holy God, awesome in his majesty. And because of that awesome holiness, we can come to him with our prayers and requests. We don't do it the other way around, though. Ask for our requests because uh, uh, we think that's all that God is for. I hope that's helpful. If not, please come and see me afterwards.